I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Mike Boris and this is Straight Talk. This is sensational. This is something you didn't ever think would happen. Ghanaian Australian Lillian Henkin, best known as Flex Mummy, is a multidisciplinary millennial disrupting the Australian entertainment industry. You're seeing me, you're getting it. She has built a reputation for being a new generation businesswoman with a no holds barred attitude to life. The, probably the only time I've also almost been cancelled is when I had done a PSA that people should say please and thank you when they ask me for things. You're so entitled. How disrespectful. You don't understand. You've got such a big head. Are you or can you be seen as problematic? Without even thinking. Yes, I'm problematic. Um, (laughs) That one resonated. (laughs) Immediately. We're getting to the point. It's going to take a second. We'll get there. (laughs) Flex, welcome to Straight Talk. Thank you. uh, This is a treat for me uh, in a sort of a intellectual level, I guess, given the... uh, huge difference between what I assume is your age when I know is my, and what I know is my age. <laughs> and uh, it's not often I get to talk to somebody who is, um, in my view, what I've seen, so evocative for your generation. That's a great word. I like that. <laughs> um, and, uh, and I've done a little bit of reading on you and uh, I find it fascinating how people in between, let's say, 20 and 30 can build such interesting business models which is nothing I would have ever thought of when I was in that age group and nothing I would have thought of even today in my age group. But, and it comes from knowing your, knowing your audience or knowing your cohort very well. Mm-hmm. And you've done brilliantly. Thank you. But I just want to, uh, in terms of measurement, brilliantly, I don't know whether you've done brilliantly or not, but I'm just saying in what I can see, what I can measure. Trust your judgment. Yeah, measurement, <laughs> yeah. So if we just go back a bit though, yes. how the hell did you, Lillian, flex, Get into this business that you're in, the business, you know, the business of being a, let's call it a, I hate the word, but let's just call it just for the sake of anyone who might be listening, an influencer. Yeah, we can call it that. Yeah. I, but I don't like the word, like sort of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> for me, you're a social uh, commentator to a large extent mm-hmm. for probably for not just your generation, many generations, but how'd you get into it? How'd you become this person? So first off, who do you think you are? I think I am a person who has the innate ability to turn my inner delusions into my outer reality. That's what I think. I think I'm an alchemist really. (laughs) But um, in, in many senses, I'm just a creative who doesn't want to live a hard life. 
in the way that I saw the adults live hard lives when I was younger. Hard life mean, mean you know, going without, you mean with constraints? Well, this is the thing. I, I definitely assumed that discipline was a hard life and choosing, uh, choosing to do things diligently and consistently was a hard life. And being a, being ha- having, having phrases like, well, if you want that, you're going to have to pick or choose. That felt like a hard life to me. Or this idea that I was exposed to the value of money younger, that was a hard life. Who knows what that was? I think it, every year when I discover a new meaning for hard and how it's um, arbitrary and subjective, I'm like, either way, I don't want it. Whatever hard is in 2022, I don't want to live that. Um, but I started this, oddly enough, by almost failing high school, which is so bizarre to me because I was present. I was in the classroom, putting up my hand, engaging, chit-chatting, asking questions. Turns out it's not enough to retain information at the time. So when I got my ATAR, which is um, the result you get at the end of doing your final exam, it was like 56. I was appalled. Also a bit confused, but wasn't stressed because at that time I was extremely money motivated. So I thought that this, you know, arbitrary certificate certificate was meant to lead me towards um, an outcome that would be favorable. And if it didn't, I'd find another alternative. So I was just working in retail, working in a pizza shop, having more two or more jobs at any given time. And I thought, you know, I'd take one gap year and that was just a, a work year. And then in that time I spent too much time watching reality TV. And there was this one show on MTV called The Hills. And it was about these uh, girls who lived in um, California who worked in PR. And I was like, this is sensational. They dress up, they go to work, they chat. This this sounds like what I would want to do. And the only place I could find to learn public relations was at a private college. Did I consider what that would cost? No, because they said they offered hex. And so I went there and recognized that doing business management with a major in public relations was maybe practical, but I wasn't looking for practical at the time. I wanted the return on my perceived investment. And so after three months or maybe closer to six months, actually, I dropped out. And the reason I dropped out was because I found myself a full-time internship. It was meant to be part-time, but I was just there every day. In comms? In comms, in PR and comms. It was at an agency who called X Factor and they looked after Garmin and the Astros and Cartoon Network. So it was varied enough that I was on the ground um, doing stuff and, and getting a real understanding for the industry. Uh, and then that turned into a proper full-time job. And suddenly I was working in PR, but I wasn't the publicist I thought I was going to be because I didn't consider that there were skills and specialties that made people good at that job. I mean, when I look back in hindsight, one of the greatest skills I learned from that job was foresight, right? I couldn't, I just remember I kept getting feedback from my boss who would say, you know, you have to anticipate what's coming next. And I'd be like, well, how do you do that? I don't know what that means. And the one example that she gave that stuck with me was she said, let's say we're hosting an award show. We've got tons and tons of A-listers, you know, at Star City, um, which is an amazing convention center in Sydney. And so she said, you know, if you know that the event's going to finish at midnight, what do you do? And I was like, be there until midnight? She says, no. You make sure that when that event is finished, we have a hundred cabs lined up ready to take everybody home. And when they get home, you make sure that in the morning we send everyone care packages. We check in, we close that loop. I was like, why'd we do that? She's like, why wouldn't we? 
And it was that kind of rhetoric. I was like, okay, I think that she's trying to instill something in me, but you know, it didn't make sense till it had to make sense. And so I worked in that for a couple of years and I moved to social media management because that's just where the industry was going. At the same joint? At a, in the same joint. And then I moved to a different one that had a specialty in more of like lifestyle, beauty, fashion, communication, more of the avenue that I wanted to go down. But it was terrible because again, I was really naive in what I assumed it would do for me. I was like, this is going to be really awe-inspiring, life-affirming. It's going to animate me, activate me. I'm going to feel excitable and, and amazing. And I just felt burnt out and stressed because, you know, when you walk into an environment, you know, I was like unfit for purpose. I was trying to be this like business maven and I didn't know anything about it. And I was out of my depth and didn't really have that great resilience to to pick myself up. And so I remember talking to a friend of mine. I was like, I just need a, a fun job. If I just had a, a little fun job to do on the weekend, maybe I would put less pressure on this job because I've always had two jobs. Maybe that's the issue. So I remember at the time I would have been 19 or 20 around there because I I graduated when I was 17. Um, And I remember going to this club in King's Cross called Kit and Caboodle. It's this really cool club night for really young, you know, adults. And they called it like an internet club night. You'd wear cool clothes, things you'd only see on the internet, electronic music. It was very, very fun. And I was like, I want to work here. Like this would be a great part-time job. And so I, I went to the club promoter and I said, can I like work here? And they said, well, you need to be employed by the venue. So that's what I did. I went onto the venue's website. I applied to be a door girl and I got the job. I said, amazing. I did the job for a little while. Um, which was entertaining, just talking to people all night. And then I went back to the club promoters and said, can I work for you? And they were kind of like, well, we can't afford to pay you. So, okay, (laughs) this is very confusing. Well, um, and then I had this epiphany that maybe they just don't want to work with me because they don't know me very well. And I've come to extract all this value from them because I can see this amazing thing that I want to be a part of, but I've not added any value to them. So I said, well, I work, well, I have worked in public relationships. I currently work in social media. How can I help you? You know, maybe that's something that could work out just for free. And they said, well, we don't know what help we need. And they said, well, just tell me your business problems, maybe. They said, well, a big consideration is that we pay a lot for DJs between 9 p.m. and maybe 1 a.m. People don't show up till about 1 a.m. So we've just, you know, invested all this money and there's no return. Well, I said, why don't you just DJ as a club promoter if there's if that's something that you can do? He said, we don't really want to. We want to enjoy the night. You know, we want to mingle and dance. I said, well, why don't I DJ? And they said, do you know how to DJ? And I said, well, no, but I can definitely learn. Like, how hard can it be? They said, okay, if you learn, like, let us know and then you can be a DJ facetiously. So I went to learn how to be a DJ. I used YouTube. I used, um, my brother has experience with music production. So I thought he could teach me rhythm and beat matching. Um, And I asked the club that I worked at if I could come in after my day job on weekdays to use the equipment. They said, yeah, sure, that's fine. And then before you know it, after a couple of months, I was DJing. Was I any good? Probably not. But I already had that first touch point of being like, okay, I can DJ now. Can I come and DJ for you for free? And they said, yeah, of course. Now, oddly enough, you would think, well, what about the venue that's employed you to do this job from 9 p.m. to 1 a.m. and you've offered your services? They turned out to be fine with that because in their head, they said, well, if you're a young girl who is going to do two jobs for one, two jobs at once, and also going to bring your friends, then that's way more than what we anticipated. And this is a return on investment for you. Then I was a DJ because 
what is a DJ? Someone who DJs once, twice. I wasn't sure, but I was gladly happy to take that title. So I was a DJ at a club in King's Cross and also working in social media at 20. Maybe now this is inching towards 21. I was like, this is cool, you know? And I didn't, in my head, DJing wasn't a real job. I wasn't going to keep doing it. It was it was a very creative solution to a very simple problem. I felt like I was burnt out at work. I wasn't motivated. I didn't feel uh, validated or gratified or anything. So I was like, this is perfect. This is what I want. Cool, fun job for a young, cool, fun girl. And then... Um, And then I started getting offered other gigs. And before you know it, I was doing 20 hours of DJing and 38 hours of work. And it was mm, not good, not good. I was checked out, but not in a, um, not in an apathetic way, in a, this is not exciting enough for me way. I can't be at a, I can't be at a real job while I've got this fake cool job happening. And it felt like I was living a double life. Um, so I did that terrible thing that full-time employees do and they say, can I go to part-time and then can I go to casual and then can I just, you know, like do a few things here and there. My boss was quite accommodating because I guess it's hard to find, um, at like a 20 year old social media manager at almost like the, not the inception of social media, but maybe the inception of influencer marketing where they needed a specialist for that. And they, they needed a person who used the internet to tell them who to send things to and who was cool and what was cool. And I remember having this conversation with my brother and he's like, worst case scenario, you can quit this job. And if it doesn't work out, just get another job. I was like, that sounds really simple. I'm going to do that. So I did. And then, then I was a DJ and that started this, this really, uh, this uninformed decision maybe led by hubris and a bit of naivety and delusion, probably. You just said something too really interesting, delusion and naivety. Mm. Or maybe another way of putting it is is part of your conscious, perhaps unconscious, but conscious game, you know, the way you play, your playbook, is that, you just take the view, no, I don't have any boundaries. There are no boundaries around me. Um, that may be seen as being naive, but therefore I can be a DJ or I can be a social media um, manager for the PR company or I can be in PR mm. or um, and, and or and or and or and just goes on and on and on and then I'll have a crack at it mm-hmm. and um, I'll just sort of um, while away the hours and see, see what happens because it doesn't really matter if there's a shit outcome. Yeah. If there's a walk away. If there's a good outcome, I just take it all. And at the same time, we're going to be learning. So, and and offering your services for free, so to speak. Um, yes, again, that's that's a, a person who doesn't overthink things. It's someone who just says, "No, there's something that looks cool. It's going to be fun," and you become an adventurer, mm. like nearly like an explorer, because um, you know, explorer is all about the possibilities as opposed to all the problems. Yeah, um, adventure is the same. Is that sort of your? who you are or were? Who, who, definitely who I was. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the overthinking was there, but I felt like the problems or the risks weren't great enough. And I was definitely raised in an environment where, like I said, I was exposed to the hardships that my mum was going through. She was a single mother and she was very honest about what her reality was like and um, and didn't warn me away from it. But she was like, this is just what it costs to live. And yeah, you want that iPhone, but this is what that costs and this is what I make. So can you imagine that that's not going to happen? Things like that. So I felt, and also I wasn't approaching these conversations with a sense of um, 
understanding was entitlement. I want a phone. So I'm going to get a phone. Okay, well, then I'll just work and get a phone. That's how I felt. It didn't feel like I was trailblazing or, or you know, opening up, opening up doors for myself or being curious. I just had, um, it was like a one-track mind. And thankfully that one-track mind um, led me to a place I wanted to go. But I think I could have wanted anything and been like, okay, I'll just do it. We'll see how we go. But I think, and I, I say this now, the reason why I'm not that person in that way to that extent is because life humbled me and I definitely lived in my own little world where bad things didn't happen and and good things would happen because I tried really hard or I wanted them really badly or I was earnest enough or committed enough. And that's just not really the way life goes a lot of the time. So I, I am I'm not a shell of that person, but I'm a more um, transmuted version. The core of me is that. But then life happens and you're like, well, so you're more risk averse? Not risk averse. I just feel like the implication of doing life that way is because from uh, I came up, became an MTV presenter and then I kept that job and I, I kept DJing, of course. Then I started working community radio in addition to all of those three things. Then I started doing influencing, beauty influencing specifically while doing all of those things, podcasting, um, starting my company, all of, and they just kept piling up and piling up. And one thing that stayed true is that I just said, well, what's the worst that can happen? I'll just do it. But uh, as I grew up, my business acumen improved, my literacy improved, my understanding of what I was doing improved, the value of what I was doing improved, the risk associated with what I was doing was improving and all of these things. And it's not just the risk, but I think it's that when we go to what I want to do, matching my inner delusion with my outer reality, well, I don't want a hard life. And running three businesses is a hard life, you know what I mean? And mm. and I don't want, I want to, I want to be a hedonist, right? And you can't really do that when you've committed yourself to worldly responsibilities, right? So it's not that I'm risk averse, it's that there's a contradiction, an innate contradiction with how I live that I think I'm at odds with. And so the superficial part of me is like, I want all the things. The hedonistic part of me is like, you deserve all the things. Life should be simple and easy. And then I look at people who are fundamentally stoic. So I'm like, whoa, that is living. Just a bit of temperance, moderation, getting just enough, keeping it going, maintaining even keel. But do you think uh, stoicism is the opposite to hedonism? I don't think it's the opposite, but I think it's a practical approach for the life that we, the world that we exist in. Or do you think it's, uh, so my generation, we were told to be stoic, like uh, mm-hmm. hedonism was like uh, pleasure-seeking was the worst thing you could possibly do. In fact, everyone would, you, you just wouldn't get on in the world. But I wonder whether or not, I mean, I've learned to, uh, I'm still that way, but I'm, I've learned to actually get pleasure from being stoic. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and then I don't find any other format. And to me it's just that's the way I've trained my brain mm-hmm. and I've become the person within my own story. So I am, and then every time I look at that person, I confirm or affirm the story of my own brain and uh, I become more and more that person. Yeah. And I've gone through lots of different stages, um, which is interesting, but for me anyway, um, probably not for anybody else. But when you were speaking then, Mm. I have to ask you this, where did you get the command of the uh, language, English language, that you've just been displaying it as you speak? Mm. I'm a very abstract thinker. And 
the way that I used to speak was in abstract concepts, uh, kind of like how you would imagine someone with ADHD to speak. Tangents, tangents, jumping around, abstract, abstract. And when I was in high school in particular, I would notice that when I was trying to explain myself to people that they would trickle off or change the subject or they wouldn't understand what I was saying. And one of my... um, we can call it a, a trigger, but one of my things is that I really hate me being misunderstood. It just really frustrates me. I don't know what it is. I mean, I do know what it is to some effect, but the point is that I didn't, I don't like being misunderstood. And so I figured the simplest way for someone to understand me is to make sure that I am communicating in a way that can be understood. And I, so I, this happened when I was about, I think I was 19 Um, And I did a brief stint in TAFE studying fashion business right before PR. And I would go to TAFE and go to class and then jig class and go to the library to role play being an academic. But uh, I remember I went to the library and I was on the phone, which is such bad etiquette. I was on the phone, uh, walking through the the shelves. Um, I think I was giving my friend advice, but I was, you know, touching the edges of the book and I landed on one book and I didn't realize and I was on the phone and when I hung up the phone I picked up the book I landed on and it was called Personality Plus by Florence Littower, How to Understand People by Understanding Yourself and it was this book about archetypes and personalities and different ways to express who you are and and um, to come across in a way that closely aligns with how you feel and so from reading that book I, I you have to remember I was living in my own inner world that I wasn't I wasn't really considering that other people had thoughts and emotions and feelings or that we had any similarities. I thought I was my own hyper individual. So to read this book and to say, oh, you know, you can be a sage or an adventurer or a martyr and this is how you would usually express yourself and finding all these little words to express these things that I thought were vibes, very enticing. And then it just... um. And then I I think what ended up happening is that I wanted to explain things that I didn't have language for. So when I sought out that language, it just like avalanche was like, I need more words. I have to use more words because there's so much to explain and I don't have the words. So I found them. And and, and in terms of, I mean, I just... (laughs) You, you see, you, tangent. You, you, no, but it, it is tangential. I get it, and uh, and it's and I'm sitting here watching you and watching you as well as listening to you, watching you, and I'm thinking to myself, is Flex having a conversation with herself, here, <laughs> or is she having a conversation with me? And I want to explore that for a moment with you. I want to hit, get your views on it when we talk, when we speak. Do you think we have conversations with ourselves, or do you think we're having actually having a conversation with somebody? Are we? And what is the the what is the to you? What is the sense of having a, a relationship in in a, in in a discussion? I'm talking about. Mm. So, is it real, or is it uh, we're just talking to ourselves the whole time, and then other people just acknowledging us, mm. and then talking to themselves with the acknowledgement? What do you think? No, I think conversation is real, but I think up until you agree, because right now in this. In this context, yep. we've agreed on what we're doing here. We're mm. exploring how I came to be this thing. And so when you're asking me questions, I'm honoring that I have to go back to where I was to give you as honest of an answer as I can. Otherwise, we stay in the shallow space where I say what is quick and easy and simple to articulate, but not honest to what it was or how I feel. That's not important to me. It's important to me that I'm understood by you. 
And if that means getting to a point where I'm articulating it in the way that I feel is best possible, then it's great. The contexts were different and we were trying to understand each other in this context for the value of this podcast. Then we'd be having the conversation differently. Because, I mean, that sort of brings me to the cards to some extent um, and conversations Mm -hmm. or or how you want, well, not how you want, but how you try to facilitate people having better conversations or deeper conversations. Because I I wonder, because, I mean, I, I do a lot of, public speaking and uh, and um, and really when I'm up there on the stage, I have fun with it because I'm actually sort of hopefully the people in the audience don't, aren't listening to this but I apologise. But um, I'm actually having fun with myself in relation to the audience because mm. I'm thinking to myself, I'm just talking to myself here. Um. Uh, and I, I, that's how I speak to the audience. I speak to myself. Yes. But when I'm speaking to myself, I'm talking about what I think is important, what I think maybe the audience is interested in, but really it's what I'm ultimately interested in. When you do public speaking, do you public public speaking or do you do events? I often, I don't do event, events as much. When I think about where I do the bulk of my communication, it's virtually with strangers on the internet through DM. And the way that I broaden that out is I create podcasts where I'm talking to a person for the entertainment of an audience. So when I do public speaking, I often don't often like to do keynotes if I could do a panel where I can not just interact with the with the people next to me, but to, I think it's this idea of when I'm in a physical space and there are a sea of people who are almost like we're having this shared experience, but it's so disconnected because I will never know what they're thinking in a way that's going to be beneficial to either of us. And I'm there for them. So when someone's like, come and tell us advice, strategy, whatever. I'm like, I need you to speak back to me so I know that this is helpful or beneficial. So in those environments, I often feel like, not that they're redundant because it's definitely necessary, but I often think with what I would need to feel inspired or activated, I need to talk to someone and have them talk back to me, not this just overarching, like this is what Flex is saying, so you must listen. It's a tricky one. I like the one-on-one, but I think... And that's what I try to facilitate online with my audience too much. <laughs> and your audience, I mean, like it, it's a big audience, but your audience, I presume is, um, you've probably done the analysis, but I, I, I presume it's in your cohort or does it ex- extend far beyond that? Um, I mean, you might have, it, it might be like a, a, a it, bell shape. but That's the bell shape, yeah, yes. But, but I mean, but, yes. but, but largely it's in sort of your cohort the your, 20s, in terms yeah. of age, age 20s, group. 20s, 30s, yeah. So can you parlay that into the broader my age group, for example? I mean, can you, your cards, for example, I mean, are people in my age group um, engaging with this? Not without the almost like someone who is in my age group facilitating it. Right. I would have, I would say it's, I wouldn't say poorly received, but I think that, The conversation card games reflex require kind of a level of vulnerability and intimacy that most people don't want to have with a stranger or anybody. Um, And I knew that when I was making it. And so that's why I gamified it by calling it a game. It's not really a game by definition, but it's what was required for everybody to feel like it wouldn't be a stressful situation. So no, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go down well with, um, well, from what I've observed and who I played it with, only really goes down really well with 20... mm, 20s, early 30s, and teenagers, maybe even children. I've seen a 10-year-old play and I've been just so, I don't know, perplexed, flabbergasted at how a 10-year-old formulates thoughts and how they express what they feel. 
in a way that it's not just articulate, but it's considered. And I don't, I don't imagine kids to be so considered. What is it that makes those individuals more willing to participate in, in those, those environments than, say, people in my age group? What do you think it is? It's just incentives. I really think that we've socialised vulnerability and we've commodified it so much that it looks cool to share. And it looks, no, it is cool to share and it is cool to be seen as authentic, not to be, to be seen as, and it is cool to look like you have, you know, the verbiage to express yourself. All of these things paint a really favourable picture. And I think when you get a generation that's been raised with consumption in mind, like who am I in contrast to the people around me, not just internally, but how do they see me and how can I change that image? A lot of the ways people give themselves permissions too is in conversation. Well, if I express myself differently or or if I phrase this in a way that somebody will like, then they'll like me. And you, I've noticed this. I didn't know this before I made the game. I assumed it. But when I play the game online with a bunch of strangers, you know, um, essentially, I might ask a question like, um, are you, or can you be seen as problematic? And I'll do a poll. And of course it's not a binary question, but for the sake of the conversation, it's a yes or no. And then we expand and overwhelmingly people say, no, well, not me. I could never be seen as problematic. I don't know why you'd ask that. That's, I don't know. No, I couldn't. Serious? That's what they say. That's what they say. I would, I've, I would say in any environment that I've posed that question, whether it's virtually in real life, majority of people say, no, I cannot be seen as problematic. And so then I probe and I say, well, who would you think is the, the, ult, the ultimate contrast of you? If you find yourself to be progressive and open and kind and all these things, you don't think the complete opposite of you would think those characteristics are problematic? Well, yeah, maybe hypothetically, but I'm not. I'm not. So you see that kind of, I, I wonder in that environment, do you think I'm judging you? Are you concerned with what me, a stranger, thinks about you? Then giving yourself an opportunity to be vulnerable with yourself. And then I start to think, well, why am I placing so much emphasis on vulnerability? The world isn't a safe place to be in, right? Like I think a lot of people have experiences sharing and it not landing in a safe way and that contributing to the fact that they're not comfortable to be, to be vulnerable now. It's all connected in an unfortunate way. So in terms of like, again, your, your, your audience, you know, like vulnerabilities seem to be, allows you to project yourself as being authentic mm. and authentic is cool. Therefore, you know, logically vulnerability is cool. Yeah. But why would, if you ask that question about, am I, could I be seen as being problematic? Would people overwhelmingly say, no, not me. Is that because that they're scared of showing their vulnerability or they just don't understand the question or or they're trying to project, they believe in the thing they're trying to project about themselves? In other words, we all, we are one thing, but we all pro project ourselves as being something different Yeah. or perhaps an extension of what we really are and or what we wish to be. They're three different things. Mm. Um, do you, why do people say that then? Because, I mean, if, when you put that question problematic, I immediately said, Without even thinking, yes, I'm problematic. Um, <laughs> that one resonated. <laughs> immediately. Um, and I thought there's probably not a person I know would not say that. My kids, my my ex-wives, my staff, whoever, whoever, I'm problematic. Uh, so, and I don't mind admitting it. And it's not because I, you know, want to be vulnerable or whatever. It's just, it's just uh, maybe I'm just. Just a fact. It's just real. You know, mm. it's, uh, why do you think then, then if vulnerability and authenticity are important to your audience, people would not admit that they're 
potentially pro- problematic or problematic in some other people's eyes? Well, I would say to be seen as is more important to them than to be. So to be seen as vulnerable or authentic is more important to be those things. Right. And I think in in actually attempting to be vulnerable, authentic, they find that it's difficult and so there's a coping mechanism. They're aware of the optics and they don't feel safe or they're not self-aware enough to know that they're not telling the actual truth. And, and in some ways, I'm sure there's someone who truly believes that they aren't. And so I have to honour that they might actually believe that and it's not some facade. But it's really interesting because when I made the conversation card games, it it wasn't... <laughs> Like, yes, it was made to facilitate conversations, but that was in retrospect. So at the start, when I started podcasting and um, the first podcast I did was Bobo and Flex and it was this girl that I had met virtually, an audience member of her said that she would get along with me and said the same to me. And she lived in New York at the time. And so when I went to New York randomly, she messaged me. We had one, you know, lunch time. Four months later, we never spoke again. But I thought she'd be a great person to do a podcast with because she's the only acquaintance. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today that I had that I could talk about psychology and philosophy in an expansive way with where we could talk about concepts and not have to give answers for everything and it was really fun so when that podcast got really popular I found that people wanted to join in on the conversation and didn't know how and thought that we had access to information somewhere what books are you reading that's you know increasing your understanding of the world and it was like no we just keep having these conversations and sharing information and not and we're not afraid to be curious together. So if if Bobo would ask me, you know, what is your favorite philosophy? And I'd be like, well, I don't know any philosophies. Can you tell me about them? And then she would tell me about some. And I would use that as a starting point to go Google some and come back and be like, well, I really like hedonism. And that would go on and on. But people would say, well, I don't have that information. I don't even know what questions to ask people to have those conversations. And I realized, oh, this is this is a, a grassroots seedling problem. This isn't that I can't think abstractly. It's I don't know where to start, like at the core. And so I created a list of questions and put them in my notes app. So when somebody would ask me, you know, how do I have these conversations with my own friends? I would send them the list of, you know, 10, 15, 20 questions. And, you know, as the podcast grew and more people had access to the questions, they would ask for more questions and more questions. And it was an irritation because people were being rude about it. I already, I already got those questions. I need more, you know? (laughs) So I was like, okay, uh, I'm not working for you for free. And this, if this is going to be an exchange, let it be an exchange. Commercial. 
commercial. Why not? You know, why am I the only one who has to exploit their labor? You got to invest a little something into it too. And so that turned out. So when I made the first batch, it's like a hundred games. I was like, this will do it. They'll, they'll be off my back. And then that sold out within minutes. And I said, okay, that's, sorry if you missed out. I'm not making any more games. And then they got popular and we kept selling it. So that was the thing. People wanting to know how to replicate a conversation they were observing. And then based on that, people would say, oh, this is really helping me start conversations and improve the relationships I have with people I've known for my whole life. This is really great and exciting. And one of the key bits of feedback was I didn't know that I didn't know my loved ones well. Like, how was I meant to know that? I didn't know that I was hiding information. I didn't know that I wasn't disclosing the full breadth and depth of who I am. Well, nobody ever asked me or that's why I didn't share. And so I was becoming very interested in, um, how maybe consciously or unconsciously people are withholding themselves, not because of some conscious fear or conscious judgment, but just the invitation that was missing or the permission. They weren't invited. They weren't invited. And I'm like, of course, of course. Because we're, you know, think about when you're in primary school, so much of that experience is about being picked, being chosen, being allowed, being invited to to speak, to do, to act. I was like, Interesting. We're learning about people here. Could I ask you about hedonism? Yeah, yeah. Um, again, when I come, I, I don't mind hedonism. I'm, I'm happy with it. But like when I was in your your period of, of your life, um, mm. that was a bad thing to do. Um, you know, you should never enjoy yourself. Mm. So, but it, what is hedonism to you, and why is it important? Because you know, we hear all sorts of um, reflections by various generations on your generation you know, title, blah, 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 all the stuff that we hear. Um, it's not wrong. <laughs> yeah, but, 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 and, but entitlement's not wrong either. Yeah. It, it, entitlement is correct, but entitlement's not wrong either. And it, and I often just say to people, it is what it is. So why the fuck are you getting carried, you know, stop carrying on about it. But what do you, what do you mean by hedonism? Mm-hmm. So when I was younger, hedonism was just indulgence, eating what I want, buying what I want, shopping where I want, very high level superficial things. Then it kind of dovetailed into, you know, this, it is a sense of entitlement, like feeling like I should, I should be able to do what I want in the way able that I want. Able or entitled? Both. Right. Because it, if, because the entitled is that like, I felt like the world should also facilitate in me getting what I want. So if I want to sleep for 12 hours and then start like at midday, like that's what I want to do. And that, Everybody should normalize that in and around me. And if I want to stay up and craft all day, I should be allowed to do that. And my motivation for that is that it feels good and I like it. And it, and it, I think to myself, if life, if pain and suffering and all that stuff is just guaranteed and inevitable, and you have to really work hard to feel good or even a baseline of contentment, then I'm going to overindulge in that. Um, also, I'm where I'm from in Ghana and West Africa broadly, there's this saying or this lifestyle or this ethos called big enjoyment. It's to think. Sorry. <coughs> you can have, I haven't used that yet. Oh, thank you. Go for it. Thank you. Mm. Big enjoyment. And candidly speaking or paraphrasing really, it's this idea of seeking ease, enjoyment, pleasure, happiness, joy, gratitude in any circumstance. And in Ghana specifically, that's predominantly a Christian um, 
nation um, and half of it is like, not maybe most of it is in poverty. So people are actually having to really look above their circumstance to find joy. But you walk down any street and there's music playing, pumping, people dancing, laughing. Oh, you look like you have smooth skin. You're so beautiful. Ha, 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 ha. And driving away, just like positive cat calling. And, you know, if you're not also smiling and enjoying, you feel like you're outside. What, what am I missing? How can somebody be, you know, sitting in the gutter making crafts and like has a resting smile on their face? And, you know, I think a lot of that happiness comes from an overarching faith and a belief in something greater than themselves. And, you know, we're observing their poverty as the worst possible thing that can happen. And they might be observing, you know, our Western woes as the worst thing that could happen. But whatever it is, it's woven into the fabric of how that culture functions. And so I think that being having my mum raised in that environment and then her instilling that in me and always being really, really resilient and really good at bouncing back and really good at positively skewing things. And, 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 you know, I use the phrase delusion a lot because I think that it's easy for me to tap into big enjoyment because it's what I know. So hedonism isn't so far from that. That's my offshoot. Like the Ghanaian culture of big enjoyment is not hedonism. It's quite pious. But my offshoot from that is like, I can seek enjoyment and I can be happy and I can be content. Um, and I need to chase that feeling. But the issue with that is whatever I'm chasing at that very moment is also informed by what I'm allowed to chase and what I've set myself up to do prior. And so my big enjoyment now is so career skewed because that is the direction I put myself on. And to jump off that path is not going to be enjoyable because where is the money going to come from? If the money's not here, how can I go on vacations? If I can't go on vacations, how am I getting inspired? So it is, I, I definitely think like hedonism as a philosophy is impractical, but I'm using it as a practical, like a practical measure for getting through life as unscathed as possible. It's hard out here. And I didn't see it that way before. I used to think life was easy, simple, fun, funny, exciting. Now I'm like, life is hard. And so I'm like, you know, covering my, um, like, what is it? <clears throat> Abstracting my view, like covering my peripheral so I can't see the extent of how hard it is. And so if I have to, it's almost like I'm shielding myself like a child. Like, don't worry about that. Like, it's you don't need to see what's happening over there. This, just look ahead. Look how sparkly and pretty that is. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Self-soothing. Yeah, it's it's interesting you said something about um, hedonism has developed for you. Mm -hmm. It has, has different meanings. And you sort of indicate it's like uh, – not pardon the pun, but it's it's like having the ultimate flexibility to do whatever you, you want, want mm -hmm. to do or feel like doing, as, and that doesn't mean to be in a. It doesn't mean in a, as I understand it, it doesn't mean to be in a sense that um, it's not a fuck you sort of mm -mm. type environment. It's about um, if I want to sleep in I, and work later. It doesn't mean I know I'm not going to work. Exactly. I'll do it later. Exactly. Is that, is that where the name? Where does the name flex come from? By the oh, way, I wish. 
it feels like a, a positive manifestation because you're 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 seeing me, you're getting it, which I feel very validated in that sense. But you know, before I, I thought that discipline and structure was the ultimate hell, right? I was like, if there's a box I need to fit inside, then I can't do what I want when I want because I want. Now I realize it's the box that provides me protection to to be chaotic inside. So if the framework is structure, stability, discipline of some sort consistency than in the box I can do whatever but the name flex oh. <sighs> so when I decided I wanted to be a DJ and I was building that casual professional but also friendship with those club promoters um I had asked them I'm like well I can't be DJ Lillian that doesn't really have a ring to it and so we did a round table I called a round table I need help friends and at the time in you know teen language flex was one of those like colloquial terms that we used like lit or fleek or whatever it would have been so I was like I'll, I'll be flex that's amazing so naturally I went to go and grab that username on Facebook and Instagram and it was taken up by the chiropractic community and the yoga yeah. community and the physio community and so I was like okay well we come so it took us so long to get to that point we just needed a little suffix or something to add on to the end and you know, it was like, could it be angel? Could it be whatever? But then we settled on mommy because it didn't, ma- it didn't matter. It was just, we just needed a name to put it on a poster and so make you it Instagram. Flex. You, just, yeah. you just want any, any, any suffix that yeah. allow you to use the name flex. And you know what the worst part is? It was taken by some Serious? random guy in America. And <laughs> at the time I was like, should I ask? No, you shouldn't ask. It's his username, but he still hasn't. And that's why I'm. As you're running parallel. Yeah. As you just got that name here in Oz. Yeah. But you do sell stuff out overseas. That your products are being sold overseas. Aren't yes, they, yeah. they are. But yeah. I own the trademark. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I, I do want to. It's interesting. You were talking about. It looks like or feels like. What you're trying to achieve in terms of um, your life is the opposite to way. It's the way I was introduced to my twenties which is all about structure mm. and hard work. And I'm not suggesting you don't work hard. You must be working hard because you're doing well. But but that's the difference. I want to work hard. I want to do hard work. You reminded me of something. I was once asked about uh, the ethic of hard work, mm. you know, and uh, and I said it was for me and I, when I thought about it, it was like three stages for me. First stage was um, monkey do, monkey see. I saw my mum and dad work really hard. And uh, therefore, I thought I'd work really hard. And that's what you do. Mm. Monkey see, monkey do. And I was like 20. Second stage was I moved out of the west suburbs of Sydney and moved into the city for a, in a job. And all of a sudden, I got introduced to um, luxury items, holidays, cars, there houses, go. clothes. <laughs> and, the, and I worked out the harder I work, the greater I get rewarded. So I work hard, work more hours, work longer, blah, blah, blah. I make more money and I can go and have those things. Mm. So effort equals reward. So hard work equals reward. And then, but people talk to me today about it and um, I actually see it as something much more important. And hard work for me today is uh, it's it's a privilege. Please, I, please I elaborate. Like, I like working hard because I have the privilege of being able to work. Mm. So and it, it dawned on me and it only dawned on me because I had a, um, a situation which I experienced. I had a very good friend who was a friend of mine for all my life. He was a bit old me. He went to uh, Vietnam. I was lucky enough just to miss out because I voted in favour of Whitlam. And uh, 
And but he went Vietnam. He he was a fight a boxer, and uh, he joined the military police, and he was somewhat traumatized from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Anyway, in his late fifties, he got uh, suffered a stroke, and as a result of suffering the stroke, uh, he was bedridden. And uh, he and I used to have this conversation all the time about work, etc. And uh, he couldn't speak, and in the end, he decided to just stop eating and so the money he had accumulated would be left to his family so he mm. wouldn't eat into that money for the rest of his sort of incapacitated life. But before he died, literally the week before he died, he said to me that, um, you know, you've got working, don't complain, having the capacity to work, he'd do anything to be able to get out of bed mm. and have that capacity again and it's like a blessing. And it was from that point that, I realised that hard work is not about structure. It's about enjoying a gift that you've been given. And uh, it's funny how it took me a long time to work it out. I was like in my 50s. But it was no longer about reward. It was no longer about just to be like my mum and dad. But it was about um, exercising the right to work. And And so uh, do you think without that experience, your perspective on hard work would have changed? um, I would hope it would have changed, but Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that. Um, But I was shocked into changing and uh, because I was sitting there actually because I used to go and visit him every day and he was down here in Paddington. I used to go and visit him every day and um, I could see he was dying and I knew he was, when the nurse was coming in, because he had to get fed through his stomach and he had to go, you know, everything was nothing through his mouth. It was all going into his body. And uh, I saw him telling the nurse to reduce the amount of food that she was putting into the thing. I knew what he was up to. Mm. And uh, and we didn't discuss it, but I knew what he was up to and he died pretty quickly thereafter. But um, he, he, I was there, I used, he couldn't talk that much. So I used to have to try and entertain him. I talk about the footy and all sorts of stuff because he's stuck in a little room, was shitty. And, uh, and I remember I was complaining about how hard it was working. And then one week later he, he said to me, you know, you're lucky you can work. Mm. One week later he died and it's, it's never le- left me. That That's 10 years ago. It's never, ever, ever, ever left me that uh, it's a blessing to work hard. Don't think about it as having to have structure in your life. Mm. And uh, and I, I just think it's such a good thing and it's interesting how you've, at your early age, your young age, you've been able to philosophize these things and sort of uh, even build logic around how you want to be. It, that is a blessing in itself that you can do this at such a young age that you have these views and that, um, and you, and by the way, you're living it. Mm. You'll no doubt change. Yeah, you'll, I hope so. You'll refine <laughs> and you'll, you know, like find other realisations down the track, etc. When it comes, I, what I don't want people to think though is Flex, Lillian is sit, sitting around and everything's just falling in her lap. Mm-mm. You work hard, yeah? Of course. Long hours. Of course. Yeah. But like even I think it's really hard to um, conceptualise. Like how do you run three companies, be a best-selling author, be a tour DJ and a radio presenter and a TV presenter if you don't work hard? How is it possible? Like yeah. it's just not. Even However way you want to spin it, maybe she's just lucky. Maybe the opportunities are easy. The cumulative effort it takes to just sustain doing one job is hard enough. Doing eight at any given time, not easy. But I also feel like being really mindful of, like you were saying, how I 
quote unquote, train my mind to perceive my reality as well. Because, you know, I was mentioning that as I get older and I realize that life isn't sunshine and sunshine and roses, I don't want that to be a debilitating outlook. And sometimes it can be because I'm not a... I'm not a nihilist at all, but I can be an existentialist. You know, when I think about how big the world is, how minute my issues are, just get on with it. But then I want to be here for a long time. So I kind of have to work through them. So it's not, it's not easy, but I don't want to call it hard because then I start to uh, manifest or will in it to be hard. And well, then it becomes hard. What word hard. would you use then? If it's not hard, it's not hard. Cause it's not, for me, it's not hard work either. It's, I work hard it's because it's a blessing, hard. but it's, it's yeah. How, yeah. yeah. I was going to say, that's how you would best describe it. Yeah, just I work hard, hard but yeah. I don't do hard work. Yeah, I, I get that. Yeah. And that. That makes sense. And I think a lot of people do not get that and they've got to get it into that. I really can't wind up until I ask you something about, oh. I want to ask you about the uh, the reflex, the, yeah. the, the questions that your card game explore, people's sexuality and, yes. and, and ask all those conversation starters that probably most people have never been asked before. Mm-hmm. Um, but definitely my generation have never been asked before. But I find it fascinating. Um, how'd that come about? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, so from the, um, like I was mentioning before, from people wanting to replicate the conversations I was having in the podcast. And it was a friend of mine at the time who is my business partner now who had mentioned after the, the game first sold out that you should, you know, you should turn it into a business. And I definitely wanted to get into product-based businesses because I recognize that service-based businesses definitely have a ceiling and a cap. And like I said, that's hard work. Yeah. It's doing a service-based business. Um, so I was like, I don't really feel like that's, reasonable for me and also not practical because if I'm going to be in China DJing, then who's going to ship out the cards? And at the time she was working at a startup and definitely wasn't loving startup life and was like, well, I can help you out. And I said, this might not make any money. I don't want you to to derail your life for this. And she was like, that's fine. <laughs> I don't, I, I don't want to work anyway. So then I would design the cards, make the questions. Um, I end up getting a friend to, you know, make my designs printable. Um, and then we would collate the cards at home. We would put elastic around them, put them in envelopes, put a stick. I learned how to, (laughs) I learned how to send mail with an envelope four years ago. And then we put it in the post box and then that was it. And then eventually when we were doing thousands of games, I was like, I cannot do this. You can't do this at home. We can't do this at home. And then we, you know, we scaled in in that way. But I I think for me, do you know what it felt like when I made the conversation card games, it was a a creative solution to such a specific, unique, simple problem. You know, I don't want to feel as though people need to come to me. I don't want to be the conduit for you having this experience. These questions are in your head, right? So at the very least, just have them in a card game and then you can decide when you want to use them and and how you want to use them and if you want to use them. But then it it wasn't even that. People know how to have conversations, but then it's like a a community problem. Well, I don't know anyone who's going to humor me. I don't know anyone who's going to make me feel comfortable enough to share. And I'm thinking, I can't help you with that. Like that's a bigger issue and it goes greater. Well, I want to have these conversations, but I feel as if I I don't, I don't know what I think about things. I, I have thoughts, but I don't actually know if I believe in those thoughts. I'm like, well, who's informing the way you think then? And, and what are you reading? And okay, well, what should I read? And I was like, okay, this is too much for me. It's too much because that was becoming hard work. I felt as though people always used to ask me, do you feel a sense of responsibility to your audience to, you know, 
X, Y, Z, make them um, more confident, more aware, more educated. And I used to say no. I'm like, they know I'm a person. They know I'm flawed. But the more I was putting myself in their line of sight for their personal development, it was becoming a burden. Because, well, you told me what um, catastrophizing is. Well, you told me what um, it is to um, have a trigger. So you need to teach me some more things. I need it. And I was like, I understand that, but I can't be that person for you. I don't want to. It doesn't fulfill me even in the slightest because when it becomes too much for me, all you can see is how it helps you. I am not a martyr. It's one-sided. It's one-sided. And I, I, I feel as though... It is, but that's not how it's coming across because when I used to explain to people, we've had the exchange. I made the product, you bought the product. Anything else is a perk, you know, not an expectation. And then people would say, well, I need more to use the cards. And I thought, well, I thought I created the solution and and I'm not here to tackle the generational the generational issue of connection that is just I don't know how to do that I don't know how to make people more safe to say how they feel because it's not inherently safe for me to do it either like I when I used to talk a lot to my audience one-on-one I was like you perceive me to be someone who has a shortcut in life right because I'm I'm in a position that you think is favorable what do you think happens when I talk about race on the internet You think it's just chill and that people just like like it and then reward? No, they don't like it. They don't, it's not a good thing. There are bad messages in my DMs. What do you think happens when I talk about mental health issues? I get inundated with people's personal stories, very terrible things. It's not chill. And I, what was frustrating me about that process is having to, I think I was doing a lot to humanize my audience and they were doing very little to humanize me. I was like, this cannot ever function because then we'd have to dismantle uh, the, the invisible guidebook for social media. It's all too much. It's all too much. So now we spoke, we spoke about where I started when I was younger. It was like, let's do more of everything, more, more, more. And what's the worst that could happen and keep going. And now I'm like, what's the worst that can happen? Everything. So let's simplify, <laughs> let's mitigate risk, not be averse, but prepare yourself for the idea that things aren't going to land as you intend. And I said before, I feel like an alchemist. So when I feel like things aren't landing as I intend, I feel like I can change that. And that's just not really realistic. My therapist does say I've got control of problems, so we're working on it. <laughs> it seems to me that um, once you offer someone an invitation, which you do mm-hmm. in your podcast and all your various other social mediums, um, to to tell you something about maybe you might be talking about mental health, that becomes an invitation for them to talk about their mental health. And what I think, what I find very interesting, what you've done, quite very bright actually, is that you've cut that off by saying, no, no, I'm not going to get involved in that. They probably still DM you. Yeah. I'm not getting involved in that. I'm going to give you a whole set of conversation starters that you can control between you and your own audience. You create your own audience and you guys go out and do it yourselves. So you sort of what you did, you put yourself into a product. Yes. But it's, you're detached. Mm-hmm. You don't have to feel it, wear it, be involved in it. So you to the extent, because yeah. you can ignore it, but I still see it. Of course you do. But I, I want to give the illusion that it's like, there is actually a boundary here. Yeah. And you made that assessment very early on when I was talking about where I came from, you were like, no boundaries. And I was like, well, I'm really, in my head, when I was like, I'm like, I'm really assertive. Of course I have boundaries. No, 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 no. Because now I set boundaries on the internet. It's like, well, if we, if we can't have 
you know, a reasonable exchange, then we can't have an exchange. Yeah. You know, and if I have to teach you every step of the way, like this is the appropriate way to ask for something. I was uh, reflecting the other day, the almost the probably the only time I've also almost been cancelled on the internet is when I had done a PSA that people should say please and thank you when they ask me for things. You're so entitled. How disrespectful. Hmm. You don't understand. La, la, la. You've got such a big head. And I think even that, if we cannot agree on basic etiquette, it's all good. This is not for me. Don't worry about it. If I was younger, I would have been relentless with it because I was for a long time. And then, and then I was just like, this is... I felt like um, what's his name? Like the guy with the 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 rock, Sisyphus. It's in Greek mythology. This guy's name is Sisyphus, and he was cursed by the gods for doing something terrible. Um, but he essentially had to push this massive rock to a top of a huge mountain, and every day would fall back down. And what I gathered from that is that when you almost like try and cheat the outcome. Not about being strategic and planning for the best, but by feeling like you are the complete alchemist, you'll be cursed with this idea that you can carry this burden alone or for it to fall back down on you. And I think I felt a bit like Sisyphus in the way that I was managing my online presence of, you know, feeling as though like I can help these people. I will give them the cards and give them the information. We will have these conversations and we will explore and, and build together it's not the case. And so as soon as I felt like we were reaching a point where we're going to cross that peak and we're going to, um, we're going to upgrade in our understanding, no, back down the hill. Because your audience grows and you meet new people and people learn at different rates and it's not my business. <laughs> and people will do, will take from you. Yeah. It's, and it becomes a one way, one direction, one directional. Well, I can talk to you for hours, please. Um, but I, I really, and I can sort of see why people like to listen to you and I can see why you have your audiences and I can see, I, I can sort of see what you're doing here. I mean, it's it's very bright, but it's also very interesting. But equally, it must be fucking exhausting. Because um, I actually, to be honest, I'm a little bit, it is exhausting to keep up with you, and uh, <laughs> and just, and for me to say that, that, I'm saying that as a compliment. Thank you. In the nicest possible way. I mean that. Um because you you make people think, mm. and uh, and you make people think not in a, in a real traditional sort of step by step way. Although it is sort of is getting to the right outcome, you're making me move to the left and the right and zigzag a bit. And I, I find it I find it very interesting. I really enjoyed this flex. Thanks very much for coming. My here. pleasure. The zigzagging is true. It's my favorite thing. It's not tangents. We're getting to the point. We're getting to the point. It's going to take a second. We'll get there. <laughs> we got there. We always get I really there. enjoyed it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistants, Jonathan Leondis. This is a mentored podcast. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 